Welcome to Jerusalem Studio Podcast. Join us to discuss the latest updates from Israel and the region. Shalom and welcome to a special edition of Jerusalem Studio. One does not have to live in the Middle East in order to view the Ukraine conflict with concern and compassion, but for those of us in this region, there are extra dimensions which bear watching. What does Russia's decision to invade its neighbor mean regarding the threat and use of force elsewhere? Has the military performance on either side met expectations? Can the United States and NATO be counted on in a similar crisis? And what about the specter of nuclear weapons? To analyze these issues, we're joined by two of our co-panelists of TV7 Europa Stands. Uh, the first just next to me is Dr. Rafael Baraki, who is the CEO of Worldwide Strategy, who formerly served as the special uh the National Security Advisor of Spain. Thank you for joining Pleasure us, sir. To be here. Indeed, and Colonel Richard Kemp, uh, who is uh, a former British infantry commander and head of the International Counterterrorism Intelligence Team at the British Cabinet Office. Good to have you here as well, Colonel. Good to be here. Thank you. Indeed, and uh, of course, uh, our TV7 editor at large, host of Watchmen Talk, and Powers in Play, Mr. Amir Oren. Amir, give us a broader uh, understanding of the current state of play when we're talking about the European conflict and its implications for our region here. So obviously the lessons uh, are not yet in because the conflict is uh, ongoing, but uh, one may see several aspects which uh, bear watching. One has to do with the nature of war. Is war acceptable? or under no conditions uh, can a country wage war, which, if true, um, may mean that there is no credible military threat. The so-called all options on the table are no longer there because uh, it has been delegitimized to, uh, to wage war. Obviously, this is not the case, but one should look at the philosophical implications uh, of the reaction to um, uh, Russia's aggression. Another aspect is that if Europe comes back into focus as one of the central areas, central theaters in world affairs, in addition to the Far East, where does that relegate the Middle East to? Third priority? Perhaps uh, even lower? And then, as you um, indicated in your introduction, what are the perceptions of regional players here, Israel, Arab countries, Turkey, Iran, as to the performance of the various world powers and the European Union and its members in the uh, Russia-Ukraine crisis. Indeed, and before we enter into the concrete uh, discussions, maybe we do touch one moment on a philosophical aspect. Dr. Brarachi, I'll, I'll start with you. Has Europe and the United States, or the West at large, uh, forgotten uh, the essence or the significance of the necessity to sacrifice, the, the meaning of sacrifice when it comes to securing the, the construct that was so diligently established on, on the background of devastation that has uh, brought more turmoil to the entire world than ever before? Yes, I think one of the shocking aspects for the Europeans of this invasion of Ukraine has been the willingness of the Ukrainians themselves to defend the country and their identity and their freedom. No? The fact that they are 
thousands of people traveling back to Ukraine after leaving their families, their relatives outside in a safer zones, like in Poland, Romania, and other countries that are accepting the refugees. It's, 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 a, it's a new kind of discovery. Say, okay, the wall is not perfect, to say the least, but it's even more imperfect for the weaker. Mm-hmm. And uh, unless you are ready to, to do something to defend yourself, uh, you are going to be ruled by the mighty powers. Uh, whether the, this new feeling lasts long enough to recover our ability to defend ourselves and psychologically change the societies is an open question yet. But uh, definitely, I think it's changing the landscape. Nonetheless, when we're truly looking at the situation, Colonel Kemp, uh, we do see that the Russians have not employed the majority of their power. They only employed thus far roughly 75 aircraft out of the hundreds at their disposal. Their best forces remain at standby, uh, waiting for the order of Sergei Shoigu, the defense minister in Moscow, uh, who will undoubtedly receive his directives from Putin himself. But uh, when we truly look at the situation, Ukraine does not really have a chance. And the only way for it to somehow persevere is through concrete assistance from NATO, something that NATO, in order to avoid a world war, potentially, in the worst case scenario, is not willing to even consider, uh, considering the the sacrifice that it will have to make beyond, of course, the economic sanctions. Yeah, I think we've seen a lot of devastation in Ukraine so far, but we haven't seen anything yet, in my view. I I think uh, Putin deliberately held off being too vicious in his attacks, held off using the full forces he could have used uh, in order to destroy Ukraine because he didn't want to do that. He wanted to, he didn't want, for one thing, he didn't want body bags flying, flowing back into, into Russia any more than he needed. And he didn't want to turn Ukraine into a real seething hotbed of resistance. That was his hope. He hoped he could bring it down with, with less than full-scale violence, but he, but he hasn't done so. And it looks like he's going to have to move on to the next stage and, and really turn it into another Grozny or something, turn Kiev into Grozny, something like that, unfortunately. But, you know, and the, and the, the reason he's holding back, I think, it, it could be interpreted in a number of different ways. I don't think he's holding back echelons of forces, including some of his strongest forces, like the First Guards Tank Army and numerous aircraft. I don't think he's holding them back for a second wave in Ukraine, unless he really needs it. I think he's holding them back for one of two other possibilities. One, that he's looking at operations elsewhere afterwards, at some stage afterwards, possibly. Or two, in case NATO does intervene, and he's got a lot up his sleeve if that does happen. He doesn't probably expect it, but he obviously needs to be ready for it. So I think that's an option. I think, the to conclude, really, the only, um, the only way of, of preventing uh, Ukraine, I think, falling to the Russians in my view, I mean, I hope I'm wrong. Um, I think their, their fall is inevitable unless NATO does intervene. And NATO is not going to intervene, in, as far as I can see at the moment. So unless it does that, there's no way of um, of preventing this conflict reaching its ultimate conclusion. So I think, I think uh, you know, and I think it would be impossible for NATO to intervene if it hadn't been terrified of Putin and the nuclear button. Dr. Barakhi, would you agree with that? Well, yes, entirely. I think uh, uh, Putin is not losing, as many believe now in Europe. He's just in a different uh, path to the victory there. And I think his political goals are just make clear that Zelensky has no future in Ukraine, uh, not the destruction of the whole country. 
Uh, secondly, I agree with uh, Conrad Kemp that the NATO is backpedaling from a very belligerent stance in the very beginning. Now it's more reluctant after listening to the threats of nuclear escalation. And the European Union uh, is still talking too much, but doing a little bit less than they talk. Uh, the promises given by Mr. Borrell of sending fighters to Ukraine has not materialized yet, and it seems almost impossible to materialize. So what I see is an evolution in the next two or three weeks. It's a critical moment whether the resistance in Ukraine will hold or there will be a turning point of the victory of uh, Mr. Putin. No? Indeed. Uh, Mr. Owen, I'd, I'd like to bring our region into the picture. Uh, one of the, the interesting developments this past week uh, were specifically regarding the nuclear talks in Vienna when uh, the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, came out and uh, suddenly, uh, not out of the blue, obviously, but uh, suddenly decided to provide a new prerequisite, uh, which is perceived as such in the West, uh, regarding the the, uh, necessity to provide written assurances from the level of Secretary of State in the United States or higher uh, with regard uh, to sanctions, that the sanctions imposed over the war in Ukraine will not impact Russia's ability to do business uh, after a revived or a watered-down version of the JCPOA will uh, be accomplished. Is this going to impact the situation drastically? Well, Ukraine and Iran are two different, though not necessarily separate, issues. And what uh, Lavrov said uh, was just um, a sort of a target of opportunity because the timeline uh, assigned to uh, Vienna has gone on and on, and the invasion uh, has now overtaken it uh, uh, by importance, and there are sanctions against Russia, and not only sanctions against Iran, Lavrov is trying uh, to make the best of it um, in in his uh, letter to to Blinken. But uh, this is not the most important uh, point here. One one of the uh, uh, points one should make is that, first of all, this is probably the very first time outside of Afghanistan in the 1980s where the Russians or earlier the Soviets have employed ground forces en masse. They always tried to send volunteers, quote-unquote, advisors, even to Egypt in 1970 during the War of Attrition, they probably sent, in addition to ground crews for surface-to-air missiles, fighter pilots flying Egyptian or at least Egyptian-marked planes. And here they invaded a country, not a member of the Warsaw Pact, the way Czechoslovakia was in 1968, but they invaded a country outside of their borders. They relinquished their gray zone doctrine of not trying to provoke um, a general war. And what they really wanted to achieve was victory in a war of wills or a war of nerves in order to coerce or to compel Zelensky to acquiesce to to Putin's demands. This has not been achieved up to now, but this seems uh, to have been their reasoning, and Colonel Kemp and uh, Raphael are right, that uh, Putin may still keep up his sleeve uh, more forces. The other question is, why is it a one-sided war? Why didn't Ukraine attack targets in Russia? 
Is it only because it wants to be perceived as a victim rather than uh, a sparing partner? Because if the um, Russian population is one of the targets in this operation or information operation, maybe hitting targets within Russia, military targets, but obviously the population would be aware of it, would wake them up. Um, so um, perhaps it will change uh, over time. But up to now, what the perception in the Middle East is that the Ukraine is trying uh, to play only the victim. Well, uh, from what I hear from Russia uh, proper, uh, they're quite aware of what's going on. Uh, the fact that they shut down Facebook or Twitter doesn't mean that all the social media uh, platforms in Russian are still not active, including the ones that are shared both by Russians and Ukrainians. So uh, there is quite of... Uh, yeah, but you know, when sharing. there was the Chechen war, Chechens committed terrorist acts in Russia proper. Indeed. The Ukrainians uh, up to now um, have been very passive. Well, Colonel Kemp? I think <clears throat> I think Ukrainians have been focused on trying to stay, keep their country alive. That may be the reason why they haven't looked outside Ukraine. Doesn't mean to say they won't in the future. And I think, it, let, let us assume, you know, in the worst case scenario, that Ukraine is taken over by Russia and Russia defeats the Ukrainian army, then the next phase begins maybe even before the final defeat of Ukraine, the next phase begins, which is perhaps a long-term resistance, which could include, obviously, attacks against Russian elements that remain in Ukraine. It could include attacks against Russia, you know, using, as Mir says, terrorist tactics. So I think that may, all of that may be to come. Indeed. Uh, Dr. Barakia, and if you may also expand uh, in your follow-up, the... United Kingdom, the United States have decided to block uh, any uh, imports from Russia when we're talking about energy, uh, oil, gas, uh, and so on. Uh, to what degree do you see this as a uh, step up in, in uh, the, the pressures that uh, the West is trying to impose on Russia? And uh, will this also have implications for the Middle East, considering, for instance, uh, the Israeli uh, offshore gas that uh, Israel so uh, aspires to transport to Europe? Uh, this would, of course, uh, not only uh, provide an alternative, but on the other hand, will also uh, trigger some tensions between Moscow and Jerusalem. Yeah, well, the price of energy nowadays is really rocketing up. So what we need first are short-term uh, options, but definitely the gas in the Mediterranean will provide uh, a solution for the long term, but we need to build a liquid uh, transport uh, to the European continent. Uh, the sanctions that are now on the table are good, but they are probably limited in scope. I mean, for instance, okay, the U.S. announced yesterday they're not going to get any oil from Russia. But they, they are not closing the ports, so they're still keeping all options uh, to, for trade and changing things and goods. In contrast to what President Biden has claimed publicly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah. there is something which is said and there's something which is done, no? as usual. So this is not so clear-cut. Uh, and also, we know from for, for our experience in the past that sanctions takes a long time to, to do their effect. So the, the, we cannot rely only in, in sanctions to try to convince or deter put into jump into the next stage of the conflict, which will be finishing the invasion and keeping the occupation of Ukraine. 
but who knows, no? Uh, that's also a, a failure of intelligence to understand what is in the Putin's mind uh, uh, regarding Ukraine and other areas like Moldova or even NATO members. No? Indeed. Colonel Kemp, uh, the UK was the first to initiate this move regarding the energy. To what degree do you see this as uh, truly impactful uh, or is it indeed uh, only a long-term game uh, expecting Russia to continue in its uh, um, strategy at this point, which uh, seems like it is a game uh, being juggled between Russia and China at this stage. Uh, is this something that should be taken note of? Yeah, I think, <clears throat> I think uh, both in terms of energy dependence on Russia and um, defense against Russia, I think Uh, certainly the UK is looking at it as being a long-term problem, not just to deal with Ukraine as it exists now. I think most people recognize that deploying a few thousand troops into Eastern Europe and maybe cutting back to an extent on, uh, you know, trades, in fact, imposition of all sanctions, including reduction in energy, is not going to have an immediate impact on this conflict. I think that's probably the the view. The the idea is long-term, looking at Um, I think, you know, both increasing our energy self-reliance or gaining energy from more reliable places than than Russia in the future. And all this could have been foretold. Um, I think those things are Britain's priorities and and no doubt the whole of Europe now, hopefully, including, you know, generation of nuclear power that's been abandoned in so many different places, fracking, which has been prevented by the, the green lobbies. Um, And I think, you know, all these things, plus, of course, on the defense side, building up Um, our defence forces again, and certainly British, and I think it would apply to the whole of Europe, European defence forces have been run down to a, a, a hugely irresponsible degree since the end of the Cold War, and they now need to be built up again um, in, in, with a view to countering whatever long-term plans Putin has. And, of course, you mentioned Russia. Well, Russia's always watching what's going on. Russia's watching our reactions. Sorry, I beg your pardon, China. China, China is watching our reactions. Um and will recalibrate its intentions according to the way we react to Russia, I think, to a large extent. With that being said, of course, when we're talking about force buildup, and, and this is something that should be taken note of, uh, much of the manufacturing capabilities, both in the UK, Germany, and elsewhere, uh, are still in place. Uh, so uh, whether it is submarines or mm-hmm. frigates or other uh, type of warfare, uh, The ability to manufacture right now in large quantities is something that Europe still uh, maintained and has not changed whatsoever. Uh, But uh, I'd like to ask you, Mr. Olin, when we're specifically looking at Israel's role in this situation, of course, uh, it is treading very carefully between Ukraine and uh, Russia, specifically also for the fact that Uh, the defense establishment here regards Israel's northern neighbor, Syria, to actually be uh, Russia. So when we're talking about uh, Russia to our north and uh, the question of potentially being an uh, energy alternative to Europe, to what degree is this now a viability or is this something that will be put off for long term in order to avoid any escalatory actions vis-a-vis the Russians? So for both Russia and Israel, Syria is the so-called near abroad. Um, And obviously, they now have uh, both friction and uh, deconfliction mechanism uh, there. Now, um, fortunately for Israel, 
it is now in the process, it has been announced and started but not completed yet, of uh, being moved from UCOM to CENTCOM under the uh, unified command plan of uh, the uh, US military. And that is because the European command must have its focus on Europe and especially now on Russia and the Ukraine and would have little attention span for Israel or the Middle East. And CENTCOM, which is also in charge of Syria, even though Russia is under UCOM, so they do have uh, to share their concern, is more focused on Israel's problems. But, you know, the ramifications are really too early to include in their entirety. For instance, Israel has called on the 180,000 Jews living in Ukraine to come to Israel and become Israeli citizens. Not many of them will use up the opportunity, but assume that they will. That means that if you take half of them as adults with voting rights, they may change the political composition of the next Israeli government. They will be able to vote in two members of Knesset. We now have an almost 60-60 deadlock in the Knesset, 61-59, but it could change. So by virtue of this war, Israeli politics could be transformed and the next prime minister could be elected by refugees from the Ukraine. So what Putin has done in late February uh, can uh, throw us all into uh, things which we can not even fathom yet. And while the domestic politics may be impacted by uh, such a reality, uh, the security establishment still dictates a clear line, something that m the majority... Well, leaders, not dictates, but drafts. Well, and drafts. the cabinet approves. Diplomatically put. Well, if I say something about it, but I think the, as a Western country, Israel was in a very difficult situation or position, uh, given the fact that the U.S. and Europeans were stepping up in the narrative against Russia, putting all sanctions, you know, all this kind of stuff. While, uh, for obvious reasons, security reasons, operational reasons, Israel has to have a different relation with Russia, vis-a-vis -vis the region and the long-term strategy, population, everything. Uh, and I think uh, that this dilemma of being with the West and condemning and putting punishment against Russia and trying to survive in the region with operational agreements uh, has been well politically solved by the initiative of the prime minister here to meet uh, with uh, President Putin and try to play a mediator role. I don't know whether he will succeed or not, but for the time being, I think Israel has been out of this dilemma of being more pro-Western sanction or reluctant to condemn Russia. No? And I think uh, this is a very good alternative, and uh, if he will succeed in the future, the whole world will, 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 will really have to thank the Prime Minister. But Rafael, you probably remember the motto from Catcher in the Rye. One hand clapping. Israel voted to condemn Russia, but silently whispering, not shouting. Yeah. Colonel Kemp? Yeah, I think one, one um, major impact of, of this campaign in, in Ukraine should be, should be, and it isn't, should be a real warning to the Biden administration on um, on going ahead with a nuclear deal with Iran. I mean, this you know the, the the effect of a nuclear armed state carrying out aggression on its back door, with no you know no significant Western 
state, no NATO member, being willing to intervene in that. You know, it's like walking down the street. You see a gang of thugs beating up a friend of yours and you, you just ignore it. Or you maybe chuck a rock to get them to help defend themselves, but that's it. And I think, you know, that is the result of fear of, of nuclear retaliation. And, and at the moment, the Biden administration is hell-bent on giving Iran that capability. And Israel is also, of course, seeing this. And uh, we hear both Foreign Minister Lapid and Prime Minister Bennett and uh, other people within the leadership here in Jerusalem speaking about the fact that the, the major lesson learned from the Ukraine situation is that Israel needs to adhere to its policy of defending itself by itself because at times of uh, trial, ultimately, every nation state needs to defend itself. Absolutely. and and. and no matter how close your friends are, no matter how willing the you know the United Nations force on the border thinks it is to help, none of it helps at all when the chips are down. You've got to defend yourself by yourself. And that was shown also uh, by the American uh, withdrawal and humiliation in Afghanistan. America was not prepared to stand by one of its long-term friends when the, when the going got really tough, so they left. And that was observed, that should have been observed here as well, and reinforced Israel's position of, as you say, defending itself by itself. Indeed. We have less than two minutes left. Uh, if you would like to give us uh, some tip, where should we focus our attention to in the near future? Dr. Bardaki, we'll start with you. Well, I think the region, as uh, other parts of the world, are, are increasing their importance and their focus of attention. I think it is time for here to think about some kind of regional uh, alliances, loose, but alliances uh, to counter the Iranian hegemonic uh, ambitions. I think after the Abraham Accords, uh, the ground is, is, is full of potential. And I think Israel has to play, as uh, ever before, a major regional actor uh, role. No? And uh, I will suggest the, the leadership in the country to take that role in leading the region to, to a, better, a better future. Colonel Kemp, 20 seconds about? I think, I think in line with that really is, um, is the, 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 the uh, JCPOA's or the renewed JCPOA's intention to release massive funds to Iran, which is going to result in a greater threat to Israel, particularly from Lebanon and Syria. And again, the lesson we just spoke about, Israel's going to have to deal with that itself, not with the help from anyone outside. Mr. Owen, 15 seconds. If Russia was happy that Ukraine does not have nukes. It is not a new Ukraine, but just a Ukraine. It should be as adamant against a nuclear Iran as Israel and the United States are supposedly, because it's in Russia's interest to avoid any semblance, not even substance, of an Iranian quest for nuclear weapons. Indeed. Well, this is all the time that we have for today, so I'd like to thank Colonel Kemp, Dr. Baradahi, and Mr. Owen for being part of today's program, and I'd like to thank our viewers as well, and we will see you next time. Thank you for joining us in another Jerusalem Studio podcast. For more content on Israel and its region, we invite you to visit our website at tv7israelnews.com and follow us on social media.